0: Well, that's one of three justification hymns. I imagine we'll be singing them quite a bit over the next several uh, weeks, if not months. But that, that is what now becomes our theme, and will, will be our theme for uh, who knows how long. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through 24 is the sermon text. The doctrine of justification by faith alone now set before us with uh, such clarity and vigor. All the way to the end of chapter uh, 8. And, uh, and certainly not out of view in chapters 9 through 11. The apostle says, but now again, notice the contrast, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And you notice the sentence uh, is incomplete, but that, I think, is enough text for one uh, sermon. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, as we come now to this great, subject, uh, a subject which was important to Paul. It's a subject that was important to the reformers, but it was important to the church fathers and really to the faithful in every age. Uh, God, we ask you that as this is now laid before the church, this church, uh, and, and, and just beginning today, but for many, many uh, months, we ask you that we would, uh, together with Paul and Luther and so many others, stand upon this rock and this doctrine and, and, and pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would enable through the preaching, in addition to the reading of your word, uh, uh, enable this doctrine to come forth with greater clarity and, f- and form in each of us a deep abiding conviction about these things and clarity as well. For these things are always under attack. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. We've come here now in chapter 3, verse 21, uh, to what is the Apostle's positive treatment of salvation. Salvation is his theme. Salvation was the theme which he stated early on in the book of Romans. In summary form, uh, he stated the gospel like this. Paul, a bond servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. That's chapter verse uh, chapter one, verse one, verses three and four. This is his summary of the gospel concerning his son Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the, to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Obviously, that's a positive statement of salvation and of the gospel. Uh, And then in his great summary statement, chapter 1, verses 16 through 17, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, and then he tells us what it is. For it it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as, as, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And it is this gospel, as stated in those two Places, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, that Paul tells us in verse 15 that he is so eager to preach. And in verse 14 of chapter 1, that he's a debtor to all to preach. He is not ashamed, he's excited, he's eager. He's begun to state it, and yet, in spite of that eagerness, the apostle detains us for a period of time To tell us not about salvation, but what it was that made salvation necessary. And it's his fullest treatment of that particular subject. Chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. The fullest treatment, again, of the question not what is salvation. We've arrived there at last, but what was it that made it necessary in the first place? In other words, what is the bad news that made the good news the good news? In the answer he tells us in chapter 1, verse 18 is the wrath of God, which is being revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is terrible news. And he doesn't just state it in that one verse, but as we've seen, it is a lengthy treatment. The bad news has to do with this. The thing that makes salvation necessary is the presence of sin and rebellion. Man here is seen As a rebel. As a lawless rebel. And that encompasses not just the worst of humanity. But Paul is at pains to describe. uh, The reality. The universal reality of sin and rebellion. This comprises the whole of humanity. The reality is. Ever since Adam fell into sin. That man is opposed to God. And that God is as a result. Opposed to man. Man in this state is not. Considered as one who is righteous, that is one who conforms to God's law and lives a life of holiness and uprightness, but he is regarded by God and by the Apostle Paul as one who is unrighteous and thus under the wrath of God. And liable to judgment. Remember the great reality. That Paul places before us. Especially in chapter 2. Is that each of us will give an account for the life that we lived in the flesh. And what will happen on that day. Or to use the language of chapter 3. What will you say on that day? Beyond that. Paul. If you think of what he has been describing in the summary. Chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. Of the bad news. He is describing not the presence of a little sin. But he is describing the presence of an abundance of sin, as he'll later say in chapter five, sin abounding. That is something that was true in his own day. You can read the history and see it for yourself, what the Roman Empire was like in the first century, although you are immediately forced to conclude that things are no different today. If you look at the state of humanity today, especially through the lens of Scripture, you are forced to conclude that sin is abounding. But the fact is that it's always been true. Even in what were seemingly the better days and the better periods of history. Sin has always abounded. And there are two ways Paul tells us that God has responded to this. Or two ways that God has sought to deal with this. The first is what we have seen. The fact that he is revealing his wrath from heaven against man. That God is opposed to man. And that God is determined to punish him. Both in this life and in the life to come. That's been the message of the Apostle Paul. But there is another side to this. And we come now to the other side to this. God's second response to the presence of sin and rebellion. God is not only revealing his wrath, but he's also revealing, Paul says, something more positive and something uh, which is more hopeful. Something that is ultimately able to save man from his own wrath. And so we see, again, that the big idea here becomes, beginning in verse 21, and all the way to the end of chapter 8, or we could argue uh, to the end of chapter 11, the big idea here becomes salvation. And salvation means being saved from the wrath of God. And so Paul here begins to explain God's way of salvation, God's way of saving man. But we must ask ourselves, since we are now dealing with uh, what is four verses that are very rich and very dense. Uh, what are the main features of, of the salvation that Paul is describing? And there are four main features or four things that we can say about this salvation. And the first thing that we can say, and this is what I've already been stressing as I read these two passages of scripture, that salvation is presented in terms of a contrast. And really, it is always in Scripture, especially in the New Testament, presented in terms of a contrast. The gospel comes to us now with these two words, but now, or if you look uh, very similarly in Ephesians, Paul says, but God, it's the same emphasis and the same effect. As though to say in both instances, as bad as things appear and indeed as bad as they are, There is, thank God, another side to this. Man is desperately wicked and left to himself, we realize there is no way for him to escape the wrath of God. Yes, but Paul says, thank God, God has done something about it. Consider again the state of man in which these two words are uttered or to which these two words are uttered. uttered, But now man in a state of sin and rebellion. The world, it seems, is lost. And in reality, I think we can say in uh, in light of Romans chapter one, not only is it lost, but it's getting worse all the time. If you read the history of the world, if you read the history of the Bible up to the coming of Christ, this is what you will conclude. And what you will conclude, uh, the basis of that conclusion is that man considered in himself is hopeless But that isn't the full picture. To make matters worse, we see that God is determined to punish sin. Absolutely. He will by no means clear the guilty. This is something we'll consider this evening from Exodus. God is too holy ever to overlook the presence of sin. He will punish it as surely as he reigns in heaven. Yes, but do you see what Paul conveys by these two simple words in the midst of this reality and this realization? But now he's saying, come to the other side. Do you realize there is by God's amazing grace and love another story to tell? Now God has done something in addition to revealing his wrath. He's still revealing his wrath. He's still pouring it out and storing it up for the last day. But now, God has done something in addition to that. Now God, Paul says, has revealed his righteousness from heaven. And it is the now of salvation that Paul is declaring. Looking at this as a contrast, we discover it is a temporal contrast. It has to do with time. It is the fact... uh, That now Christ has come into the world that Paul is proclaiming and is preaching to the early church and to the first century Roman world. Now that Christ has come into the world, Paul says, as he declared in chapter one, verses three and four, a radical change has taken place. Now, today has become the day of salvation. Formerly, perhaps it was not so clear. But who can deny God's willingness to save the sinner? Now that Christ has come into the world. And so that's the first sense in which there is a contrast. But there's another sense in which uh, he is describing a contrast. And that is found in the words. Apart from the law or without the law, depending on your translation now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed well, those words are not surprising, are they? Given Paul's emphasis in chapters 1, 2, and 3 upon the law. The law work, we called it. He's been telling us about the law. It's condemning power. It's convicting power. As well as, and really this is the important point, our rebellion to it. Consistently, Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter who you are. There is no one who keeps the law. No, not one. And so seen from the standpoint of the law, And all men together are placed under the law by God. Seen from that standpoint, man is hopeless. He's lost before God. The law is placed over him, not as something to help him, but as something to tell him about his sin. Well, I think we could say it helps him. Let me adjust that statement. Not as something that can save him. Not as something that can save him. The law is not his savior. But God in placing man under the law uh, uh, is is seeking and does deal with man on the basis of his law. But Paul says that on the other side. God has now done something in addition to this apart from the law or without it. In other words, what Paul is telling us about here is God's way of dealing with man on another basis, not dealing with man Under the law, but bringing him into another realm and dealing with him on the basis of that. And uh, to preview what Paul will later say, that other thing, that other realm or that other basis by which God establishes his relationship to man and evaluates man and rewards or punishes him is grace. The other side to law. Yes, Paul says there is a way to get out from under the law and to be brought into another realm. The realm of grace. And this is something that God does. And so that brings me to the second point or emphasis about salvation, and that is the fact that salvation here as ever is presented as God's work, not man's. This is not just a reformed emphasis, this is a biblical emphasis. Salvation is seen as the work of God, not of man. Which is necessary if you have at all grasped what Paul has said in chapters 1, verse 18 through 320. If it has made any effect upon you, if you've listened to what the law has to say, and the law has silenced you in the presence of God, then you realize that man is unable to offer anything to God. Man is unable, that is, unable... To contribute anything to his salvation. He is unable to offer a positive righteousness to God. Even though that is precisely what God requires of him. And if that is the case. Then the only conclusion. And thank God Paul is saying this is precisely what the truth is. Is that God must act on behalf of man. God must intervene on his behalf to save and to redeem. Otherwise there is no hope for man. But as part of this, there is another thing that Paul uh, stresses with respect to this being the work of God. And that is the fact that though, uh, although God is doing something new now, in contrast to what uh, he had done before. That is a statement from the standpoint of history that now God is doing something radical and amazing That doesn't mean that God, from the standpoint of his own plan and purpose, is doing anything new. But the reality, as Paul stresses, is that because this is the activity of God, that this is not just God responding to the sin of man. This isn't plan B. God had hoped to save man by the law, but now man having failed that, God steps in and says, all right, I'll try another way. What a diminished view of God you have if you think that's how he operates. But Paul reminds us here that in reality that this was the plan all along. That even under the law, that very law and the prophets witnessed to the way of righteousness that God would one day reveal in the coming of a new covenant. He says, apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and The prophets, that is the Old Testament scriptures, Paul is saying, always pointed and they always anticipated this work of salvation. They never actually declared that salvation was by the law. Paul has already proved that he'll prove it again in chapter four. They always anticipated the work of a savior. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter three, verse 15. But what has God done? Well, Paul says, and he said it earlier, too, that what God has done, the way in which he demonstrates his invincible power to save. Is by the revelation of his own righteousness, the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed. And it is this again, which the law and the prophets, that is the Old Testament scriptures witness to. And it is this that God has especially revealed now. His own righteousness, the righteousness of God. We read in chapter one, verse 17, the same thought is revealed. Uh, Let let me uh, let me read it. It is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So the thing that God has especially revealed now is his righteousness. But let me try to explain what that means for God to reveal his righteousness is not merely for him to declare that I am righteous. That is God speaking, declaring to sinners in their lost estate that he is righteous and they are not. In other words, for him to reveal his own righteousness as an eternal attribute of deity, for if that is all that Paul meant, but now the righteousness of God is revealed apart from the law. To sinners in their lost estate. If that's all he did. We might easily ask how would that help us? And the answer is it couldn't. That would not help us. That wouldn't be a grace work. That would be a law work. It would be to leave the sinner where he is. And to make things worse. It would be to highlight his sin. Not to alleviate it. But that isn't what Paul is saying. When he says the righteousness of God is revealed to us. In order to appreciate what he means then. We must appreciate the precise force of the word reveal. We understand what righteousness means, although I'll get back to that in a moment. But what does the word reveal in this particular case mean? Just as we asked the question in chapter 1, verse 17, when he said the same thing. But now the righteousness of God, or or he said, therefore, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Revealed in what sense? And here, in three words, I think John Murray very helpfully summarizes the sense of what Paul is conveying here. And and it is exactly in the sense that the wrath of God is being revealed. And uh, those three words are revealed in action that is brought actively to bear upon the sinfulness of man. We can appreciate the force of that with respect to the wrath of God. It isn't just that man is made aware of the wrath of God, but that The wrath of God is brought to bear upon him in his sinfulness. And man comes to know that in his own experience. What he experiences is not just a knowledge of the wrath of God, but he experiences the wrath of God itself. It is exactly the same with respect to the righteousness that God is revealing on the other side of the equation. To reveal the righteousness of God to faith Paul says it's for God to bring his own righteousness to bear upon the sinner in his sinfulness. God responding to the sinfulness of man. Only uh, in, in opposition to wrath. Now unto salvation. The righteousness of God brought to bear savingly upon the sinner. Such that again brought into his experience. Such that now the whole dynamic of the sinner's relation to God has changed in a radical way. It is no longer the wrath of God. That determines the relationship between man and God. But it is the righteousness of God. That determines the relationship between the sinner and his God. He no longer stands on the basis before God of his sin. But he stands before God on the basis of God's own righteousness revealed to him. That is what determines how things stand between the sinner and God. This is also stated in verse 24 as being justified. There is the first instance of that phrase, which will come up over and over again. The great theme of justification, although we did see it in verse 20, didn't we? That no flesh will be justified in his sight through the law. But there is a way, Paul is saying, for the sinner to be justified. That is for God to look upon him as the judge and to declare him as one who is just. To declare that he, though a sinner, is one whom God regards as righteous. For he has justified him. To be justified is to be declared or to be regarded by God as one who is righteous even though a sinner. In chapter 4 we'll read Paul saying that God justifies the ungodly. For that is precisely what he does. He does not justify the righteous for there are non righteous but there is a way for him to justify the ungodly. And that's what he's describing here. Well, let's explore this idea a little further because Paul has more to say about it. Justification being the work of God to sinners, to guilty sinners. He tells us also that it is done freely and by his grace. As though to underscore precisely what we'll see this evening. That the grace and the mercy of God is uh, is Sovereign. The justification of sinners is not something that they earn. That is something that their own sin rules out. They could never as sinners deserve for God to justify them. But here Paul tells us of the freeness and the gracious character of God's justification of sinners. There's only one explanation for it. That God in his wrath should ever choose to justify guilty sinners. And that is that it arises solely from his own spontaneous love and grace. And mercy, that he abounds in grace and compassion. He loves to pardon. All the things we'll see tonight from Exodus chapter 34. In other words, solely from the fact that he wanted to do it. And for no other reason. Because this is what God is like. And salvation is thus seen to be, in using the word freely, it is seen to be a free gift. And the word grace, in addition to that, freely by his grace, underscores the fact that what God is offering to man is precisely the opposite of what he deserved. Not what he didn't deserve, but precisely when he deserved the opposite. When man deserved to be condemned as a guilty sinner, God justified him as one who was righteous. But here's the great question. Well, there's several great questions. There's a lot more to to be said, in fact. But here's one of the great questions, I should say. How does God achieve this righteousness for man? And you see, Paul answers that too. It's not the case that, that God simply says, again, this would be to view the righteousness that is revealed as an attribute. I'm going to regard you as one who is righteous like me. That is not how Paul conceives of justification as occurring in the courtroom of God. And the reason is because that would be for God to ignore man's sin. And that is something that even God can't do. He can't simply overlook it. And so the really important thing to see is the final phrase in verse 24. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. There is no phrase in all of these verses that is more important than that, beloved. It tells us everything that we need to know about the doctrine of justification. About that is God's way of saving sinners. Everything that Paul has said here about the righteousness of God that has been revealed. Understanding what he means by that phrase to sinners has occurred as a result of what Jesus Christ the son of God has done for us. Hearkening back to the the language of chapter 1 verses 3. And four, that he has been born. He's been brought into the world. He has been uh, raised unto the right hand of God. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the one who has achieved the righteousness of God. To preview the language of Romans chapter 5. He is the one who has paid for our sins on the cross. As we'll see in the next two verses, in fact. Verses 25 and 26. Let me read them. Through the redemption... That is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed and so on. He's referring to the cross and what Christ did there. And he's also the one let me state it again uh, going forward to chapter five who unlike Adam lived a life of perfect obedience and righteousness so that by the obedience of the one. The many were counted righteous. Romans chapter 5 verses 18 and 19. And so the point is, all of that we'll see in the weeks to come. The point is that the revelation, or, or the, the righteousness rather, that God is revealing to man as his salvation, as his justification, is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The accomplished righteousness of Jesus Christ. The God-man. The Son of God. Which again he achieved by being born. By being made one like us. In his, uh, I don't know who used to speak this way. I want to say it was the Puritans. In his doing and dying on our behalf. All of his life and his death. And even his ongoing intercession in the presence of God. The revelation of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the righteousness that is brought to bear savingly. Into the life of sinners for their salvation. And this in no way diminishes the freeness. And the gracious character of salvation. It still comes to us as a gift. Even though it is a price to be paid. Because it's something God does for us. Not something we must do ourselves. The whole marvel of salvation as John Murray says. Is that if we were to be saved. There was a price to be paid. A ransom was required for that is what the word redemption means. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the ransom. But now Christ has paid it. And not we. For we could not. Christ has paid for our sins on the cross. And he has achieved a positive righteousness in the sight of God. But we have another question. Now is my third point. This is the activity of God number two. But the question that we have. This is book three of Calvin's Institutes. Uh, How are we made partakers of this salvation? This is something we'll look at as well in the the children's communicants class from uh, the the, the catechism. That's the precise language. How are we made partakers of this salvation now that Christ has accomplished it? In other words, how are we justified freely by his grace? And there's two things uh, that can be said in answer to this third question, and that is, Uh, First, we must stress again the phrasing without the law or apart from the law. We must recognize again and again, the Apostle Paul will stress that the works of the law, that is the works that we render in obedience to the law, contribute nothing to our justification. They do not prepare us for God's free work of justifying. They do not contribute to the moment of our being justified, nor do they contribute to our justification in the life that we live or uh, the life that will be evaluated. Apart from the law. How then? The really important idea here. Stressed twice here. And many, many times in the verses and the chapters to come. Is faith. Just as Paul says. And he states it twice. In Romans chapter 1 verse 17. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Twice he says it. From faith to faith. The one whom God justifies is the one who exercises faith and no one else. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. Again and again, you notice that is the emphasis. It isn't the one, in other words, who has works to anticipate the argument of chapter 4. For who has works? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 23. No, works will not do. They will not justify. Nor could my works ever bring me savingly into contact with the righteousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ. And so there must be another way. If it is to be in accordance with grace, as Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16. It is of faith that it might be of grace. But what is faith? Well, faith, according to chapter four, is my certainty that God's word is true. We'll have ample time to look at that, but that would be my my basic definition. Again, borrowing from Calvin's definition of faith, my certainty that God's word is true, that when God says he is able to save me, that God may be trusted and taken at his word. He may be believed and we need not look for anything else. Outside of God's word, we must rest fully in what he has said, for he is trustworthy and he is able to do what he has promised and all that he has promised. And this is precisely what we will read in chapter four about Abraham. And this is true of all of his children who have faith like his. My certainty that God's word is true. But what does God's word say to believe about his ability to save? And so uh, there is another thing that I could say in addition to my definition about faith. And this is precisely what Paul has in view in chapter three. That the power of faith to save or more specifically to justify depends upon the object in which it is placed. And here that object we are told is Jesus Christ. It is faith in Jesus Christ that causes one to be justified. And especially as he is revealed as our righteousness. Faith considers him as he is revealed to us again in his doing and dying his life and his death as recorded in the Gospels. And what faith believes about Jesus Christ unto justification is that he is able to save. It looks upon him as Lord and Savior. Faith looks upon Jesus Christ As he is revealed in the gospel. And it sees him. Now that he has come into the world. As the bringer of salvation. And as the accomplisher of salvation. It beholds to use the language of John the Baptist. The Lamb of God. Who takes away the sins of the world. And it rests and it receives salvation from him alone. And from no other. It looks not to self. Or to the law to save. But to Jesus Christ alone. That is what faith is beloved. Again, to use the language of the confession. Receiving and resting upon Christ for salvation as he is revealed in the gospel to us. But I have one last point. Seeing how we are made partakers of this salvation, what is the extent of it? This is something that Paul is especially concerned to emphasize all through the epistle up to this point. And here he couldn't be clearer to all who believe. The righteousness of God is revealed To all who believe. How does he put it? To all and on all who believe. And so the emphasis is upon what it was before in chapter 1 verses 14 through 17. That there are no exceptions to this. Not that all are saved. But in so far as all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Ruling out any possibility that man could be saved on the basis of his works. There is only one way to save him. And that is the way we've been considering Paul's basic point is that all have fallen short, all have sinned. But in addition to that, he says, so all who exercise saving faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. There's no difference whatsoever from the standpoint of faith and salvation. All men stand on on the same exact ground. It doesn't matter what else is true of you. So long as you have faith, you will be saved. That is the universal law of the kingdom of God. There are no exclusions. There are no exceptions. You will be justified freely by his grace. And this, he says, the moment you believe being justified, stated in the present. You see, Paul isn't saying you have to wait for this, that you have to wait uh, for this to be resolved or even revealed to you for the last day. He's saying it's true of you and it's true of any of anyone. The exact moment you believe being justified. To have faith is to be certain God has redeemed you by his son. It is to have this righteousness revealed to you as your salvation. And nothing can ever take it away or change this because it's something God has done for you. God now regards you if you have faith. As one who is righteous in his son. One who is just. Because by faith. You have been united to his son. Who is your righteousness. And your life. He looks upon you now. And he considers always the work of his son. And he sees in you one who has been redeemed from the fire. And from the wrath. One. Whom Christ his son has bled and died to save. One who is redeemed, he says. Or justified, rather, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus by faith. And so as soon as you have faith in this gospel, the great issue between man and God is settled all at once, once and forever. All who believe this gospel, though they fall short, Paul says, are saved And they are justified once for all. Here is the free gift of God, which faith alone can receive. The gift of salvation, which comes through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God, he says, and as we will consider next time, set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen. And let us now come to the table.